Father, your word tells us that the, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word represents your wisdom to us. It also reveals your son to us. The one who the scriptures is about. So Lord, calm our hearts, help our minds be present as we open your word and we consider what it looks like to live wisely rather than foolishly, knowing that Christ is our wisdom, that Christ became a man, that he lived and then he died in pain and suffering that we might have life that we might be restored to the Father. We might know you. What a glorious truth this gospel message is, the good news that Christ died and was buried and rose again for us, that we might have life, and we might have abundant life, and yet we live in this broken world, Lord. We need your guidance and your wisdom. We need your spirit to be at work in our lives as we experience the brokenness of this world and the different seasons that we walk through. And Lord, I pray for us this morning, maybe some of us brought in a lot of pain, a lot of adversity in this week, in this month, in this year, in the last few years, Lord, minister to us in that. And perhaps others are here in a time of blessing and good times in their lives, Lord, let us remember even in those times that it's your hand in both of those times, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray this morning in the brokenness of this world with things that have happened in Florida with hurricane, hurricane hitting, Lord. We pray for those people where they're at. We pray for folks to step into that and ministries to step into that. We pray for opportunity for us to engage in that. In the name of Christ, Lord, we pray for this time. As many of us have gone through challenges like that, Lord, I pray that it would be shaping, shaping for people that they would turn to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for time together this morning to open your word and we pray for churches this morning who are opening your word and trusting in your word through your son. We pray that good work in the lives of people in and outside the church would be done this morning as we celebrate the risen Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. May of 2015, I took my good friend Patrick Bailey, who's part of our church now. He was a senior at um, Baylor University. Sorry, Baylor. It was a rough day yesterday. We had qualified for this USGA tournament, the two-man four-ball USGA first annual event, and it was in San Francisco, California. We got to play the Olympic Club. If you know golf, it's like an historic place for all kinds of different tournaments and I've got kids at the time. I'm married and have kids. And so I took off and we played the tournament. Incredible time, joyous time. Patrick's family came out. His dad and mom are good friends of ours. And my wife, Melanie, came out and joined us. And the Baileys, Patrick had to go home and take finals. And um, the Baileys decided, uh, hey, why don't we take you guys to Sonoma? Why don't we take you guys to wine country? Y'all, we don't know anything about wine. At least in 2015, we... We, this, we were along for the ride, and so we went out and took a day and went to wine country in Sonoma and had a great time, um, enjoyed tasting different wines, 
But one of the most fascinating things, this is our first trip. This is our first trip. We, we don't know anything about how wine is made, the history of any of this stuff. I think one of the most interesting things to us and meaningful things to us wasn't the wine tasting as much as it was the, the history of, of how this thing works and also the process in which wine is made. And one of the things that stuck out to me as I observed in Sonoma, basically, is, man, it's dry out here. They're rolling hills, and these vines are set on hills. And I'm like, I grew up on a ranch, and we raised cattle, and we needed water, like lots of water to grow hay and hay fields. I remember my dad saying, just telling God in the middle of the day in the summer, come on, rain. We need some rain. We need to, as much rain as we can provide for this. And I noticed that, man, where's the water? Where's the water? To, uh, like, don't we need, I'm from Texas, so everything's supposed to be bigger and better. And I'm like, looking at these vineyards and like kind of scrunched up um, grapes. And I'm going, how is that going to make good wine? Like, we need big, like, grapes like we get at HEB, the steroid-induced grape, right? That's what I thought. I, I had no idea. But what I learned, and this is kind of the saying, if you, if you know wine, stress on a vine makes the best wine. Stress on the vine makes the best wine. And they explain the process of me that the reality is, is we have to stress these vines, and the best wine is produced from that stressed vine. You know, we see this in nature in different places. Just look outside your, your house in the summer in the scorching heat and your St. Augustine grass and it's scorched. And if you know grass, what you know is, is that you need to let it go through some pain. You need to let it go through some of that so that it strengthens it. It needs water or it will die. But if you just pour on your sprinkler system all the time, you're going to give that grass the, the roots of that grass are not going to grow deep, and it's not going to be strong, and it's going to be more susceptible to disease. We see that in nature. We see that in our own lives. If any of you work out, you know that the way in which you get stronger, bigger muscles, like William's over here, the way that that happens is, is that you tear the muscle fibers of your bicep or whatever you're trying to work out, and it grows stronger and it grows bigger. We understand that. We understand in parenting if we're helicopter parents and we're protecting our kids from every little thing, guess what? They're not going to grow up and be responsible adults. They're not going to know how to navigate the world when they turn 18 and go. They're going to know when their teenager goes through pain that I can't go to the school and gripe out the teacher when it's probably my kid's fault. I can't go and do what I want to do to the boy who breaks up with my daughter. That's, she's not dating yet. <laughs> right? I can't go to the teacher and blame the teacher all the time. Maybe sometimes. My kid has to take responsibility. It's not helping them. And when you think about your faith in Christ, what do we know from Scripture? It's all through Scripture with examples as well as texts that we have. The testing of your faith, stress, adversity, the testing of your faith produces what? James 1. Endurance. And endurance has its end in producing maturity so that we're made complete. Jesus says, take up our cross and follow him. The text in Romans chapter 8 says, all things good and bad work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Believers in Christ. But you know what it does for us? That's verse 29. It conforms us. Good and bad conforms us to the image of Christ. And so we know in all areas of our life that this is true, and yet 
I want you to think about your own life. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, send adversity and pain? We don't need to pray that, y'all. But listen, we avoid adversity when it comes, okay? When it comes because there are different seasons of life. And different seasons of life means times of celebration, times of joy. We've got some newlyweds over here. Times also of adversity and pain. But man, we live in a day of incredible prosperity, whether you see that or not, compared to previous times. We live in abundance. We live in prosperity. And man, I want to live like you want to live the stress-free life. And that's what we do. We medicate against it. Not that medicine is bad. We avoid it. We insulate ourselves as much as we can from pain, from adversity, from hardship, And when it comes, we ask God to take it away. And sometimes that's good. But listen, one of the greatest tools God can use in your life to mold you and shape you is pain and adversity. Do you know that? And some of you are going, yeah, I've been in it. I'm ready for some a different season where I can rejoice and breathe. And that's good and right. But adversity in our lives grows us in ways that prosperity and ease cannot. Think of your life in this. And so the idea this morning from Solomon is going to be this, that prosperity and ease isn't always good any more than adversity isn't always bad. Adversity oftentimes is the best thing for us. I don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. But the reality is, is life under the sun, adversity produces the best we have like that vine. It produces the best that's in us. It often strengthens us. It grows us like nothing else will. By, here's the key, and you're not going to like this necessarily, by God's design. We're going to get there in this text. So Solomon, the preacher, you know what he's been preaching about? He's been blowing up the assumption that temporal things will ultimately satisfy us. Blowing up the assumption that his labor, and he ought to know, right? He had it all, that his labor was ultimately meaningful and brought blessing. No, that his learning of wisdom and knowledge would satisfy him. It didn't. To know that his pleasure, that pleasure would satisfy him, it didn't. To know that his possessions and all that he built and all that he did, in the end, it didn't give him rest. It didn't give him satisfaction in and of itself in life under the sun. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll be in verses 1 through 14 primarily this morning. I want you to notice as we read, I want you to notice um, the comparisons, the contrast in prosperity as well as adversity, and what oftentimes, this is kind of proverbial wisdom for our lives that most people would understand and believe experientially, But you're going to see these comparison and contrast. You're going to see what produces real wisdom and character in our life and what often produces folly and foolishness. And last, you're going to see in this text, who's the one weaving all this together? Who's the one that's in control and bringing about both prosperity and adversity in our lives? Here we go. I just want to walk through, I'm going to start in verse 10 in chapter 6 because I think it asks the question that's answered in chapter 7, 1 through 10. So let's look at it here. 
I'm going to start 612 to give you a little context. And I'm just going to, as I walk through this, I'm just going to walk through the text and help you understand this contrast a little bit better. We'll, make some, we'll have some thoughts out of that. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes as a shadow. So what's good for us? Chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what's good for us. A good name is better. That's character. That's wisdom. A good name is better than precious ointment. This is what they would use for different circumstances. It was highly valuable. But a good name is better than what's highly valuable, the perfume. And the day of death, then the day of birth. See the contrast? Where are you going, Solomon? It is better to go to the house of mourning. This is a funeral. This is, not the per- this is not his own funeral. This is somebody else's funeral. Than to go to the house of feasting. Maybe that's a wedding. For this is the end of all mankind. What's that? The house of mourning. The funeral of the person. And the living will lay it to heart. Meaning there's learning to be had when you go to a funeral. When you see the casket there, you're reminded of the frailty of life. And you consider and you think about your own life in view of how finite you are. That that's coming for you. Sorrow is better than laughter. Really? For the sadness of face of the heart is made glad because there's consideration. There's teaching that comes from sorrow long term. Verse 4, the other contrast. The heart of the wise, notice that, is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We don't really use the word mirth. I don't. It's gladness. It's the idea of gladness. For it's better, verse 5, for a man to hear the rebuke or correction of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Sometimes we need correction to grow and learn. We often don't want correction. It hurts rather than to be with fools who are just singing foolish songs. This is also vanity, Solomon said. He's been there. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, meaning if you see injustice, there's going to be a response in your heart, a righteous indignation toward it. And it does something for us that's good. And a bribe corrupts the heart. Maybe the oppression here is a bribe. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. You think about the beginning of something. When you start a business or you start a project at home, you're excited, but you haven't done any work yet. But the end of that is good because you can reflect on the work and the hardship and know you've accomplished something. I think that's what he's saying. And the patient in spirit, better than the proud in spirit. I don't think that needs any explanation. And here's an example of patience. Don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. But be patient, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. See the contrast, wise, foolish. Say not, why were the former days better than these? As you get older, that's what you tend to do, the good old days. But there's much to learn if you're wise in present day. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So you see the comparison? I look at some of the, some of the good times in here and go, I, I want more of that. I look at birth and laughter, and feasting, and parties, and singing, and starting projects, and good times, and celebrations. Listen, those are good times and good seasons in our life. Remember chapter 3 where he says there's a season to mourn and a season to laugh. Those are good things. I don't think he's saying they're not good things. Solomon has had a few good times, hasn't he? 
He's enjoyed the fruit of his labor, his children, parties, food. Remember in chapter 1, he bought the band. He owned a band to play for him. Okay? He enjoyed the celebration. He enjoyed building and starting things, building homes and pools. He played sims, as we said a few weeks ago, in real life. And there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. Good times are good. And we can celebrate them and we rejoice in them. But they often don't really produce a good name or character or wisdom in our life. They're not really meant for that necessarily anyway. They often, though, can produce a foolishness. Remember the parable in Luke chapter 12? The parable of the rich fool? There's a man that comes to Jesus and he says, can you make my brother give me my inheritance? And Jesus, he's Jesus, so he knows the guy's heart. And he knows what's really going on in his heart. And Jesus says to this guy, I'm not going to judge between you and your brother. And I think he knows his heart. And he says, beware, don't be covetous. And then he says, one's life does not consent consist only of abundance of his possessions. So I think he's speaking to the guy who came to him. Be careful what you ask of Jesus, right? And then he tells the parable of the wealthy landowner who had all kinds of possessions and he had all kinds of crops. He had so many crops that year that he looked at his barns and he says, I don't have enough room for those crops, so what am I going to do? So rather than giving some of those away, he says, no, I'm going to I'm going to knock down the barns that I have, and I'm going to build bigger barns. And so he does that. He builds bigger barns to put all this abundance in, and then the parable turns a little bit. And he, and he says to his soul, after he's built these barns, he sits back and he looks at these barns, and he says, I'm going to relax. I'm going to eat, and I'm going to drink, and I'm going to be merry. Life is good. There's not many places where Jesus, in parable form or directly to his disciples or other peoples, look at him and say, you're a fool. But here, that's exactly what Jesus says in the parable. You're a fool. Don't you know? He doesn't know. Your soul is required of you tonight. Meaning, you don't know this, buddy, but you're going to die tonight. And you did all this work. And then he says these words. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, pro prosperity is not always good. We believe it is. Comfort, ease. We, we functionally in our lives often buy that lie that ease and prosperity and comfort and insulating us from adversity is the best thing for us. But the lesson we learn here doesn't really make us better. It might make us more foolish. I'm convinced that's why I don't have a lot of money because I think I would be an absolute fool. I don't know about you. That's right. So your thought this morning, your first thought is this. Good times don't typically grow us a good name. I think that's what's going on here. I think in verse 1 there where he says a good name, I think under that you find out what makes for a good name, what makes for character, what makes for wisdom, and it's not necessarily prosperity and ease. I don't like that. <laughs> I'd rather grow in my character. Everything's fine. Everything's good. It's not really the way it often 
works. Um, you can see this in our, in our nation's history. If you just take the last hundred years of our nation's history, and you go back from, I don't know, 1920 to about 1970, um, there's a lot of adversity in that time frame. Just come off World War I, depression, Great Depression hits. People were going to potato lines to get food, no money, working hard, lost everything. World War II comes, adversity and war. And I, I had the privilege of knowing my grandfather who grew up in that era. The last five years of his life, we lived with him. He was, he was dying of emphysema. But rich time for a grandkid. I was like from kindergarten to fifth grade, lived in their home while we were building our house close by on the land. And here's a man who had grown up in the depression. And you could see it in his, in his hands. You could see it in his face and the wrinkles all over his face as a 70-year-old man. That adversity went to World War II, served in World War II, worked oldest of 12 kids, worked on the land. I don't know if you knew this, but back in the day on, on ranches, they didn't have the helicopters go over and, and dump the fertilizer. They had kids with fertilizer, and they didn't know it was bad. And he would run through the fields. He'd work his tail off. He would run through the fields with fertilizer to fertilize the land in the, in the fields below the house. And you know what? That only, only really got to know him for about five years. But what a rich blessing. You know what kind of man he was through adversity? He's a man of honor, respect. He was hardworking. He shook his hand. It was done. And I remember his funeral. First Baptist Church, Lano, Texas, busting at the seams. The people that would walk by said, your grandfather was a great man. Adversity produces good things. And yet if you look at 1970, and this is not a knock on everybody. This is a stereotype, I know. If you look at 1970 or so to now, not our, uh, those families had children. Those children had some of us. And we've lived in, in prosperity. And it's a rich blessing. I'm not dogging us for growing up in what we grew up in. But notice what prosperity and lack of adversity has produced. And we look at something like COVID, rightfully so, and go, man, that was hard. And now we're talking about all the effects that COVID's going to have on our children. And that may be true. But here's the, a blessing in disguise. Our kids have been through something hard. Do you see life that way? I don't oftentimes. Adversity can produce a good name. Not in and of itself, but it often does. Let, let me put it in today's vernacular, okay? Dads, if you have daughters, okay? If you have a daughter. Do you want a Captain America type guy to date your daughter who will respect her and honor her and open her door? Or do you want Tony Stark, present day billionaire who's grown up in prosperity? 
Which one do you want your daughter to date? See, adversity has a way of molding us and shaping us like prosperity doesn't. And that doesn't mean we go looking for it. We're going to see that in the text a little later. It doesn't mean that we go looking for it. But it certainly means that when it does come in the season that it does come, do we receive it? Do we learn from it? Do we grow from it? I think it does mean that. Enjoy the blessings of God. But I think Solomon, all people, knew the blessings of God. He knew the good times. But there are dangers lurking in those good times if we're trusting in the good times. They don't grow us much. They don't teach us much. So what's the other side of Solomon's comparison? Look at it with me. The other side of Solomon's comparison here is hard times, right? Look back at the text Good name is better. Day of death. House of mourning. You're learning though. You're growing. Sorrow grows us or it can. When someone gives a rebuke or correction that can help us grow if we choose to receive it. I mean, so it's not birth, it's death. So it's not a place of laughter, but a funeral, a place of mourning. It's not starting something, but it's finishing it. And the work that is involved in finishing it, why? Because we learn in life, this is just the way it is, we learn more in life from hard. So here's your thought, your second thought. A good name is most often grown through the crucible of hard times. It's just a fact. I want you to think just for a minute about weddings you've gone to and funerals you've gone to. You think about a wedding, you're, you're there, you're excited for the bride and groom. And when the guy's up there talking, and yes, the vows and the rings, they're very important. But what are you, what are, you are, are you listening deeply? Are you going, I can't wait until the party because we can celebrate. When they walk down that aisle, we can celebrate them, we can clap for them. And that's a beautiful thing. But when you go to a funeral, you're listening. You come face to face. With death and mourning, but it makes you think. And listen, I'll tell you as a pastor who's done a lot of weddings, there's nothing more celebratory than doing weddings and seeing people come together in the covenant of marriage. It's a beautiful thing. And I was, I'll tell you, I was the same way, so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I've done 25, 30, I don't know how many weddings I've done. It's a beautiful thing. But I can promise you this. Hey, pastor, you got eight minutes, <laughs> right? You got 10 minutes. I take 15, you get the, get the look. We want to get to the vows. And we we want to get to the end where we kiss and leave and get out of here. Enjoy marriage, right? And that's, that's right and good. I, have, I don't remember anything one of my friends said when he was doing our wedding. I'm just staring into my wife, about to be wife's face. That's a beautiful thing. Not necessarily learning things. That's why when, when I got married, my, my buddy who did our wedding is like, hey, I'm going to give you the script because later you're going to come back to these vows. All right? You're going to come back to what was said. Do the same thing. You go to a funeral. Listen, when I do a funeral, I go sit. I go sit with the family. And they care about the content of the funeral. They care about what's said about this individual. What they were like and their legacy and their testimony. 
And when I'm doing a funeral, I can promise you I can hear a pin drop. Nobody's usually doing this unless it was just a sorry person. Because there's much to be learned at a funeral from those who don't know Christ because they're staring death in the face, as well as people who do when they're reflecting on their life and they're mourning for somebody. They're going, what does my life look like? You can hear a pin drop. Words matter. The things being said matter. The hope of Christ in that moment matters. Blessed are those who die. God celebrates and mourns. Blessed are the death of the faithful, right? And so listen, a good name most often grows through the crucible of hard times, funerals, sorrow. I think I I see five things. You want to grow a good name, character, wisdom? (laughs) Press into these things. Learn from a funeral. Learn from sorrow. Learn from correction. Learn from patience. You want to be patient? Through trial and tribulation, be patient. That's what grows us. I think that's what this text is saying to us. Don't waste your adversity when it comes. We're not asking for it often. We're not trying to be martyrs here. We enjoy the good times, but when adversity comes, we learn from it. Let it mold us. Let it turn us into the fine wine that God wants to make us into because he wants us to be the sweet aroma of Christ. I want you to see this in the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures and examples from the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, New Testament, Peter, refined by fire, Paul. But look at Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this. You can't fit prosperity gospel into this, okay? You just can't do it. The prosperity gospel only thrives in a place of prosperity. But look at the New Testament. So, man, you're going to follow Christ. There will be hardship. Look at this example. Um, the author of Hebrews has just considered Christ in verse, um, verse 3. Consider him who's endured for sinners hostility against himself, that you might not grow weary when you experience it. Verse 7 Check this out. Pay a close attention to verse 11. For it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So the imagery of father, son, daughter. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you don't discipline your kids, they're going to be crazy. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. You see that, kids? What we got to do. And we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them, parents. But he disciplined, God disciplines us for our, because he doesn't like us? No, for our good. That we may share his holiness. This is how we grow. For the moment, catch this, for the moment, all disciplines seem painful. All the kids said amen. Rather than pleasant, but later yields what? Peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look at, look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
He's just shared this beautiful picture of being born again to the living hope that Christ has given us. By God's mercy, he's caused us to be born again, verse 3, to a living hope because of the resurrection. And guess what that gives us? It gives us security. It gives us hope in the resurrection of Christ. It gives us a living hope and also an inheritance that we can look forward to. And then he says this in verse 6, in this, this gospel truth, you rejoice. Though for now and for a little while, if necessary, Christian, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the testing, so that the tested genuineness of faith, your faith will be tested. You will have adversity and pain is more precious. That pain is more precious than gold and silver. And listen, the good news is it perishes. Pain's not here forever. There's seasons. It's tested by fire, though. It's warmed up. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, adversity produces good in us as believers in Jesus. When hard times come, it makes us dependent upon the Savior. Do you believe that? And here's the deal. We know we have a Savior who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose name is above his name, is above all names. He's become a man, and he's lived this perfect life, and yet he's gone through adversity for you and me. He's gone through the pain of the cross for you and for me, which brings life. So if you want to look at adversity, look at it through the lens of Jesus and what he's provided for you through adversity and hardship and pain, what he's brought to you, the good news of the gospel. Let it mold you. Don't let the idol of comfort and control short circuit. When the season of pain and adversity come, what God wants to do that with you, that he wants to refine you like a fire. Last. And maybe you're saying at this point, okay, pastor, uh, uh, it sounds like I need to pursue some pain if I really want to grow. I don't, I don't think you have to pursue it. I don't think you have to pray for it. It will show up. It'll show up in life. And, and, and the second question you might be asking, where is God in all this? We haven't seen God in any of this yet. Look at verse 11 through 14. I'm going to show you. Wisdom is good as an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And so what he's doing is he's saying, hey, let's say you get a $6 million inheritance. Is that inheritance, is that profit, is that going to grow your character? No. But guess what? If you have wisdom in it, it might preserve and it might help protect that inheritance so you don't do something foolish with it. So wisdom, God's wisdom protects us even in times of prosperity, and it also preserves life of him who has it. So God's wisdom protects us, often from pride, but it does something else. Look at verse 13 and 14. In verse 13 and 14, here's what we find out, and this is really important, that God's wisdom gives us an eternal perspective on hardship, on good, on good times and bad. It helps frame everything that we've said so far because you may be thinking, what's the point? 
Where's God in all my adversity and my pain and my hardship? Look at it. Verse 13 and 14, it says this. Consider, reflect the work of God. Okay, what has God done? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We've seen this before in Ecclesiastes. We've seen it a couple times. We saw it in chapter 1. See, the world is broken and sinful, and human wisdom can't make straight what's crooked, what's broken, even though we try in our human wisdom. But look at this, verse 14. In the day, this is key. If you've tuned out at this point, you've got to look at this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. So if you've got good times right now, enjoy them. Receive them from the hand of God as a blessing. And, I don't like this and, in the day of adversity, consider. So what he's saying is both prosperity and adversity come. Where's that from? Look at it. Consider this. Second time he said it. Consider, God has made the one prosperity as well as the other. Adversity. You're telling me that God's over all this? He has days that he's set up that there will be adversity for me? Yes. He has days where there will be prosperity? Yes. How's that land on you? Why has God done that? Because pain and hardship shapes us. And we often need relief as well. So that we may not find out anything of God after us. See, God's wisdom protects us and gives us an eternal perspective. We need that eternal perspective, especially on hard. Remember Job? Remember after chapter 1, Job loses everything? And his wife, I don't know if I recommend this, fellas. But his wife says, just curse God and die. Thanks, wife. And he says, and, and, and Job says to her, you go the other way, fellas, so don't get so, you know. Foolish woman. And then he says these words. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity and not trouble? This dude just lost everything. His children, his home, his cattle. He lost it all. I'm probably in the wife's camp. Time to die. I'm done. And Job says, wisely so, because he knows his God. We'll accept good, but we also have to accept adversity when it comes. That's a wise man. And then Job has three friends that try to reorient what happened in a different way, and he's like, no, I'm not going to go there. And he has questions. What about us? We accept good from God and not adversity. See, God's wisdom protects and preserves us and gives us this eternal perspective. I don't know about you. Listen. I don't know about you, but when I think back on, my, on, on past, and I think back to the valleys, you think back to the valleys of your life. Parents divorce when I was in ninth grade, um, adversity, lots of transition in my life because of that, broken relationships, disappointments both in myself and my sin, and others, and the way they've acted, and hurts, and pains. When I think about the deep valley, I look back, and you know what I see in the valley? A lot of the time, 
Where does grass grow? It grows in that valley. Where is fruit, fruit produced? It's grown in the valley. And I think about the peaks of life. Marriage, celebration, fun, children. All the peaks that you can think of in your life. They're beautiful th- times. They're celebratory times. They remind you of the goodness of God for sure. We need to embrace those. But the highest of high peaks, is there much grass there? Not so much. See, God grows us and shapes us and bears through fruit most often through the valley in the pains of life. Here's what I know. I know I'm not good. I know left to myself, I do not have a good name. I know left to myself, I'm foolish. I know left to myself when adversity comes, I don't want to listen to correction. I want to be angry. I don't want to go to the funeral and reflect. I want to mourn and be mad at God. But here's what I also know. I know one. The good name above every name has entered into humanity. And he's lived a perfect life, and yet he died in adversity and pain, and he gave his life for you and for me that we might have life and hope, a living hope in and through the pains of life. You know what else I know, Christian, if you're here and you know Christ, I know that God conforms me to the image of his son, which includes trials and tribulations. And he uses all of it, the good and the bad, to mold me into the image of his son. There's an old poem my old pastor used to share. I think I heard it so many times that it just kind of sticks when we're talking about adversity and trial and hardship and how it forms us and makes us. Perhaps you've heard it as well. It's called The Weaver. Listen to this poem and consider in your own life the ups and the downs, and where God, really God's place is in the ups and downs of life. Listen to these words. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaves steadily. Oftentimes, he weaves sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I see only the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skilled hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows. He loves. He cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. You know, in those valleys, here's what I know. I know God is good. I know he cares. I know he loves. And I also know that he's all wise when he, haven't, he hasn't given me the next step. When I don't know the next chess piece that's coming, I can trust and believe that he is all wise. And he is good Let me ask you this question as we close. Are you being shaped 
and molded by pain? Or is pain sinking you? Are you shaped by pain? Or is it sinking you? The key of all of this is trusting. Is believing that God has good for you through pain and hardship and suffering. This is what Solomon's saying. Solomon's saying, I've done all that. It didn't grow me. It never grew me like adversity and hardship did. So here's your takeaway. Trust in the weaver's skilled hands. Let me pray.